0: I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry of McCormicks Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection on, a, on the blood of jesus there's an There's an old law or rule in 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 the, with preachers that if you if you don't have something to preach, you just preach about the cross you can never you can never ever hear. Too much about the cross or the blood of Jesus. The sad part is that the blood of Jesus and the cross is unfortunately preached many times just around Easter time. And anymore, that's, that's the way it is in a lot of Pentecostal churches, apostolic churches. The fact is that our power, every bit of healing, every bit of all the benefits that we've got, this great church that we've got was built on the power of the blood of Jesus. I mean, we, I love to shout, I love to dance, we run the aisles, we called holy rollers and all that. But it's because of the blood of Jesus and the power of the blood of Jesus that we feel the freedom that we feel in here right now. It's because of the blood of Jesus. And a lot of times we, we sit back and we say, well, we've heard this preach before. Or A lot of us preachers, we've said it before. I know I have many times. And, well, I can't preach it. I've preached a- along the same lines before. But f- forgive us, God, for, for ever trying to go around the blood and not wanting to hear about the blood of Jesus. This message that I preach tonight, You should be more excited about this message more than any other message there is. because It's because of the blood of Jesus that you're set free from the bondage of the sin and the death that the devil had on you before. Any time that I was sick, any time that I needed deliverance, my father... Pleaded the blood of Jesus in my life. He didn't preach me some message or some fancy message to tie it over to the Old Testament. He pleaded the blood of Jesus Christ. My father, my grandfather, when he prayed for me, he pleaded the blood of Jesus. When I was sick in my body, he quoted scriptures like, And when I saw thee polluted in thine own blood, and when I passed by thee, I said, Live. And that's the kind of scriptures that set us free. So we should never ever get tired of hearing about the blood of Jesus so tonight that I, I want to talk about the power of the blood Colossians 1 20-23 Colossians 1 20-23 and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that are sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now all hath he reconciled, excuse me, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If. Ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which, which, which was preached to every creature under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. I want to preach to you tonight the power of the blood. The power of the blood. I think I may have changed well, There is power in the blood. You may be seated. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise as you're seated. The human body, it is one of God's greatest creations. It is magnificent in origin and flawless in operation. It's amazing in study and with an eternal soul. A soul that will live forever someday. Just if you think about how amazing... Uh, the blood is which is it 's the forgotten body system. the blood is an organ that we often do not acknowledge. It, a drop of blood just small enough to feel in the letter uh, o uh, in your Bible contains five million red blood cells, three hundred thousand platelets, and seven thousand white blood cells and in the the, the, the heart is the pump that pumps the blood throughout your body. It beats on an average of 70 beats per minute or over 100,000 times in 24 hours. It ejects an average of 6 liters of blood every minute. 144 liters every day. 48,384 liters in a year. Or in 70 years, 3 million 386,880 liters of blood that's a lot of blood the heart requires no lubrication or maintenance it never rests it has an output that varies between 0.025 horsepower of rest and and and, and rest when it sleeps and it drives up to 1 horsepower in a moments in moments of stress it its valves open and close 4000 to 5000 times each hour of the day, and that uh, and it has the blood. It uh, is an incredible, incredible organ in the Bible. Exodus twelve and thirteen. Uh, I, my goodness, I lost one of my pages of notes. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to be in trouble, aren't I? It's an incredible thing. The, the, for the, the blood, it's, it's amazing. The blood has often been talked about uh, about it throughout Scripture as sacrifices. And ex, Exodus 12 and 13 says, "...and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt." The blood has often been acknowledged throughout the scripture for sacrifices and throughout the Old Testament, just for forgiveness of sins, or actually the slaughter of an animal, of an oxen, just merely pushed back sins, maybe, if you will, under the rug. There was never any remission of sins or forgiveness, it was just a temporal thing. If you will. And throughout the whole Bible, the, when it talks about the blood, it points towards salvation or forgiveness. It, throughout the Old Testament, the flight of Egypt, the hustle to get ready in the dark, the preparation of the Passover, the lamb, the blood applied to the doorpost was their salvation it marked the blood over the door which meant that your firstborn son would be saved without the blood over your door there would have been death there would have not been any life in the household it would, it would have caused so much pain and aggravation. If you read and study the Bible, the people that did not put the blood over the door, they lost their, their, their oldest son. And what a horrible thing that it was. Throughout the whole Bible, we find that the word blood was mentioned 447 times in 375 different verses. It has numerous characteristics it in genesis 4 and 10 it had a voice it had life in genesis 9 and 4 it cannot be concealed in genesis 37 and 26 it was marked when it was placed on things in genesis 37 and 31 it can become judgment in exodus 7 and 17 it may serve as a sign in exodus 4 and 9 It was a token in Exodus 12. It it seals a covenant in Exodus 24. It has specific requirements in Exodus 34 and 25. Only the chosen may use it in Leviticus 1 and 5. It places limitations in Leviticus 12, 4 through 7. It is an offering in Leviticus 14 and 25. It is allowed to touch the mercy seat in Leviticus 16 and 15. It requires commitment in Leviticus seventeen, three through four, it shows the marks of sin. In Leviticus twenty and eleven, it serves as a sacrifice. In seven or Leviticus seven and thirty-three, it shows signs of injury. In Deuteronomy thirty-two and forty-two, it is a sign of peace. In Second Kings sixteen and thirteen, and in Psalms ninety-two and fourteen, it talks about it being precious. Yet the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than any blood that was ever shed in the Old Testament. In Matthew 26 and 20, 28, the Bible said it is the Redeemer of sins. His blood is just and innocent. Matthew 27 and 24. It was shed for many. In Mark 14 and 24. It has eternal life. In John 6 and 54. Uh, it came to us out of His side. In John 19 and 34. It is the declaration of the righteousness in Romans 3 and 25. It has has the power to justify in Romans 5 and 9. It has to be taken in communion in 1 Corinthians 10 and 16. It has the power to condemn in 1 Corinthians 11 and 27. It supplies redemption in the, uh, the blood of Jesus in Ephesians 1 and 7. It brings us close to Him in Ephesians 2 and 13. It supplies peace that passeth all understanding in Colossians 1 and 20. It destroys the power of death in Hebrews 2 and 14. It purges the conscience in Hebrews 9 and 14. It supplies boldness in Hebrews 10 and 19. It is the sign of everlasting covenant in Hebrews 13 and 20. It's the precious blood of the Lamb in 1 Peter 1 and 19. And it cleanses us from all sin and diseases in John 1 and 7. It washes away away sin in revelations 1 and 5 and provides whiteness uh, to our sins in revelation seven fourteen, and in revelations 12 and 11 last but not least it is we are overcomers by the precious blood of jesus christ it's the power of the blood of jesus that washes away my sin When I was unlovable, when I was undone and nothing was going for me, it was the power of the blood of Jesus. There is not a person in this room that has not been touched by the power of Jesus Christ. You ought to be excited about the blood of Jesus. It washes away every sin. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are or how what your name is. But the the blood of Jesus can flow down to the deepest and up to the highest pinnacle. It's the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise Him for the blood. Thank you for the blood. The power of blood of Jesus. This blood of Calvary was extended to us because of the love of God. That the mystery of godliness without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. When God was manifest in the flesh, He come on. He wrapped Himself in a man as a man in the flesh, and He came here and He He died on Calvary's hill. He laid down His life. Why? So I didn't have to. That was my cross. That was the blood that I should have shed. I was the guilty party. You're looking at an innocent lamb. He never done a thing he never sinned he was spotless but what he done was he stood in the gap between heaven and earth and he carried us over to a spiritual world why so i could be saved i could not do it on my own but it was through the precious blood of jesus that gave me access to the father It is a pattern throughout the book. Loving God always reaching for a wayward man. If you study the Bible and read after Adam and Eve uh, left the garden, you can see God chasing mankind. That's what the Bible's all about. Now I'm not trying to get all sacrilegious not doing that at all. I'm getting ready to tell you the truth. Many times we ask, what's the Bible about? We say it's about God. It's wrong. You know what the Bible's really about? It's God's pursuit of man. They got caught in here. That book that you read, it's really not all about God. I mean, to us, it should be about Jesus. But this book is not uh, uh, 66 books on Him, on on the on God bragging about Himself. It was about God chasing after man. This thing's always been about the bride to the husband. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Can I tell you? You've always been God's priority. He's always going to chase you if you walk out of here and you go to your deathbed. He'll stand by your bedside and tell you, I still love you. I don't care where you've been. I'm going to pursue you until you draw your last breath. It's always been about the church to the husband. I don't think you're getting it. You're not really getting it. Listen to me. You ought to be excited about that. This thing's not all about Jesus to him. He's not some God up in heaven with some kind of inferiority complex that he had a book written about him. It's about you. If we could ever understand that in our hearts and minds, we've always been the apple of His eye. We've always been His sons and His daughters. And He'll do anything He can to get to us. Imagine him standing outside the garden after they, the, his children got kicked out and the, the angel standing in front of that, uh, the gate with his flaming sword and he's hovering over and he's going, I lost my children. And for thousands of years, thousands of years, he chased us. Yes, he, did. Yes, he, did. Yes, he, did. he spoke to men that would listen in a wicked world. He spoke to Noah. Chased us. We didn't listen. He, all the way through history... Abraham, he spoke to Abraham, and he was the father of the faithful, but he couldn't save us and he wasn't good enough, he was a great man his family was out of kilter, and he couldn't do it and further on down the road he he spoke through Moses and Moses was a good man, delivered the children of Israel, but he didn't even have, he couldn 't even enter into the promised land didn't have it all together and he spoke through David and David was a man after god 's own heart, but he was, he had his issues, and all the way through history you can see God trying to get to His children. Until finally, one day He said, well, you fellows can't do it. I think I'm just going to go down there and do it on my own. Sometimes God can only do certain things Himself. So He shows up and he, he, he's, it was clear through the view of Calvary. He, that was the only way that he could get to us was the, the shedding of something that was perfect, something that was not blemished. So he comes and he shows up. He's born of a young lady named Mary, his earthly father, Joseph. They traveled approximately 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Mary in her last days of pregnancy with the Holy One of Israel. She had ridden a donkey while Joseph had walked along the side of her. And he gently coaxed her. And she was in in pain of birthing her child on a donkey. Nowhere to go. Sad fact that Bethlehem had no room for the Messiah. They were too busy. With the cares of life, the busyness of their own schedules. They had no room for the Savior, no room for a healer, no room for a miracle worker, and ultimately no room for salvation. It kind of sounds like this modern day that Jesus Christ has presented Himself, and we're living in a world that has no room for Jesus anymore. The sad part is the ones that have rejected Him needed Him the most, needed the blood the most. there that night in the lonely stable, Joseph the carpenter helped his frail bride. She travailed and brought forth the Savior into this world. it didn't matter to the couple that the audience of the animals were. The only ones that really cared was the animals that was around them. Nobody else had any room for them. Their joy was not dimmed because they had no family around to share with them. What mattered that... To them that in their presence was a God, was a Messiah that would come, that they needed salvation too. They knew, Mary knew that she was giving birth to a child that would eventually shed his blood on Calvary's hill to deliver her. Think about that. Max Lucado had 25 questions that he would like to ask Mary. I find it neat, and I want to read them to you. She was, she was aware that this boy was different. She had a promise from the angel. But did she know that God had wrought, really, truly? Could she conceive that God had robed himself in flesh to live with her and Joseph for the next few years? Did she really understand the mystery? Did she really understand the magnitude of what he was really there for? Mary's world changed with the new addition to her home. I wonder if she had ever considered these questions. What was it like watching him pray? How did she respond or he respond or Jesus respond when he uh, saw other kids giggling during service at the synagogue? Questions you just think about. When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention the flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he how God had made the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look in his eyes as if if he were listening to something he couldn't hear? Or you couldn't hear, excuse me. How did he act at funerals? I wonder. I I like to think about stuff like this as a child. he's, He's at a funeral. He's looking. He's like, I could resurrect him. I could resurrect her. Did he... Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying to was right under your roof? Did you ever try to count the stars with Him and did He succeed? Did He ever come home with a black eye? How did He act when He first got His hair cut? I know my son screamed and kicked. Did He have any friends named Judas? Judas? Did he do well in school? Did you ever have to scold him? Did he ever have any questions about Scripture? What do you think he thought when he saw a prostitute offering to the highest bidder that, the, that, that, that he made her and he made breathe breath into her body? Did he ever get angry when someone was dishonest with him? Did he ever see him looking at his flesh in, in his arm while holding a dirt cloth? Did he ever wake up afraid? Who was his best friend? When someone referred to as Satan, how did he act? Did you ever accidentally call him father? What did he, him and his cousin John ever talk about when they were kids? Did his brothers and sisters understand what was really happening? What was it like watching him die? On a cross Questions you just think about This Jesus of Nazareth He walked through life he Forever changing This world He brought sermons He brought parables Miracles of nature Miracles of healing He overturned the religious world With their pious attitude He brought love to them He loved people that was unlovable that hated Him back. That's what always blows my mind about the ones that cried crucify Him when He pulled that cross up Calvary's hill. I can envision Him looking out of one of His uh, blood-soaked ties looking, wondering why in the world, why would you say crucify him or why would you cast a stone at me? Why would you pluck my beard out? I just raised your daughter from the dead a couple of weeks ago. Why in the world would you scream, I hate him or I, I just kill him, give me Barabbas. Why would you do that? I raised your servant from the dead. I cleansed you with leprosy. You were guilty and you should have died, but he died in your place and you're the one crucifying him. The religious leaders of our world, they pointed their finger and they condemned Him to death. But we always point our finger at those people and we always say, well, those Jews, they killed them. They they reap what they sow. But what about because the fact is that he died for my sins just like he did Pilate's he died for me brother Davis just like he died for Barabbas so I have no business pointing my finger at anybody else because he died in my place I wonder what Barabbas thought when he he walked away on that dark day and he heard the thunder and the earthquake when he looked up and saw three crosses and he realized that one in the middle was his he he should have been the one and the fact of the re- and the reality of it is not a, one single person in this room were innocent every single one of us should have died but guess what he stood in the gap and he died in my place and in your place and we should forever worship him forever we should worship God right now come on let's stand to our feet and worship God Come on, let's give Him our praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I can't worship Him too much. I can't give too much because He gave it all. Just for a few moments, let's just make it really personal. Let's just make it personal for a minute. He stood in trial in front of me. I had no evidence of wrongdoing against Him. There was nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with Him. And I stood back, and I could not find any fault anywhere with Him. He had no mars on his character. Nothing concerning his ethics. No dishonesty. Absolutely nothing. But that crowd down there, what do they want me to do? Put yourself in Pilate's place. So he says to himself, I will simply shift the blame and let them make the decision besides... It's election year, and I don't really want to to make that kind of decision. I give them a choice. Barabbas or Christ? Who will you choose? And I'm shocked because I know he's innocent. I know what he's done for me. I know that I found no fault in there. But their choice was that they chose Barabbas. And the sad part is that we live in a world that will always choose life over death. Why is that? When life is standing before the church and we constantly have a power struggle, whether we're going to choose Barabbas or Christ. He stood trial in front of me and I failed him. Yet he turns and he looks at me with great compassion. He drops some words right in front of me that absolutely blows my mind. I can't ever understand these words that he looks at me knowing that I'm guilty. He says, my blood will be for you. Next, they end up pushing him to the post. They grab his hands and they tie him to the post. They strip him of his robe and I look back at his back with his broad and wide back toughened by the work of being a carpenter but it doesn't matter to me I've done this before a few times I reach over and I take the whip and with one with nine leather tra- tails in my spare time I've woven in bones and metal so that they really do the job well I pop the whip once and then get down to business the stripes begin to cut his razor like razors through his thread And his in his uh, in his skin, the blood is running, and I'm caught up in the heat of the moment, the rush, and the adrenaline flows while I punish this savior. And then I'm stopped dead in my tracks, and as he turns his noble head, and he gasps, he never cursed, he never says anything negative, but he gives me a promise. This blood is for you. He stands before me a second time to be scourged, and I felt him again. Now we move on, we mock him and we spit upon him. Hey Jew boy, save yourself. We blinded him and slapped him. Hey prophet, who hit you this time? Then I sinned. a wicked left punched his nose, and his nose begins to bleed. He stumbles and he falls to the ground and he boldly looks at me again and he says, this blood is for you. And now it's time to go up the hill, the place of the skull, Golgotha. And I'm behind him as he struggles up the narrow road carrying the cross, this instrument of death. He slips and falls, but he gets back up And I kick him down again, again, he turns and he says, This blood's for you. He failed him time and time again. We fail him. But every time he somehow has the courage to find the patience on us. Because he knows that eventually, maybe, one day we'll love him. Maybe one day we'll love him. Maybe one day we'll throw away our pride and not jump on the bandwagon like everybody else did and threw stones at him. And he looks at us for one more time and he says, this blood is for you. And he goes on until he cannot go any further. So we jerk a man from the crowd. We're going to finish it because we're going to finish what we started. I recognize him, Simon of Cyrene by the name, and I tell him to haul the cross up the hill. I lay him on, an, on the altar and I kick Simon out of the way and I begin to gris, the grisly task of nailing his hands and his feet. I have never seen a prisoner like this before. He never fought. He never struggled. He never cursed me. Not one cross word to me. He never argued. He did it willingly. Not one time did He ever open His mouth in His defense. He just did it on His own. As we raise Him up to slip the cross into the ground, He looks at me one last time. The last time. And He says, This blood. Is for you. I'm sickened by all that because I had participated in it. My mind will never rest because of His continuous voice reaching in my mind, wailing, whispering, begging. This blood is for you. Every single one of us here tonight were extremely guilty Don't you dare let Satan trick you into believing that you're the only one. Don't ever let Satan ever to lead you that it's because of your sin and your sin alone. But every single person in this place, we have all come to the point in our lives where we have sinners and we all needed the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus. The biggest mistake that we could ever make as individuals is to think that you're the only one that has been a failure. Because you can look around and see every person in this room that has had, had to have the blood of Jesus working in our lives. I'm up here tonight to tell you that if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus in my life, I would not be here. I would be dead I would or be in prison. I'm a failure, but I'm saved by grace through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There are people in here I want you to hear me. I'm going to close here in a second. There are people in here. I'm in the Holy Ghost when I tell you. You've walked in here, and the devil has lied to you for a long time into, into letting you believe that you're too far gone. You've done too much for God to touch you. You've, you've went too far. Maybe you've not been into drugs or alcohol. Maybe you just feel far away in your heart and spirit. But I come to let you know that Jesus Christ is just a breath away. And the devil wants you to think that he's so far away. Can I tell you and remind you about the scripture when Jesus said, I'll never leave nor forsake you. He didn't put stipulations on it. He didn't say, well, if you do this or do that. He said, I'll never leave you. Never. Never. He's never left us. Colossians one twenty two our text. He says in the body of this flat of his flesh through death. To pres- Listen to me. He's talking about a no good sinner. He's talking about thieves and murderers. Liars and adulterers, fornicators, and every ungodly sinner that you can think of. This is who He's talking about. In the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. The word present, listen to me, I want you to hear me, means to place beside or near not over you or greater than you or to punish you he said I come to die for you to present you to set you by my side by me, not behind me that I'm greater than you but to present you because a husband never puts his bride back in the back but he always walks beside his bride you got to hear me he said to, present, to place beside or near the blood give, gave us access to be placed by his side the shed blood of Jesus didn't just tear down and remove the veil of separation. The blood put us right beside Him so He can walk with us. Beside it, Listen to me. Jesus used, or excuse me, God, his side and he would walk with them in the cool of the day. And the enemy had came in and he stole it. He stole the relationship between God and man. He took them away from his side. And he said, I'm coming back because I want them So I can walk with them. Hold on, I'm not done. I'm almost done. We always like to talk about the things that God did. But what about the things that God undid? Listen to this He said, to make you unblameable. How do you unblame somebody? guilty You are blamed You are the reason that he put himself on a cross And he said because of my death I'm taking away the blame And the finger will not ever be pointed back at you ever again Unblamable means in the strongs without blemish the scars of your sin will be gone. While we are constantly regurgitating our past and reminding everybody about how much of a failure we were or are, he's saying, I'm here to erase it. And I'm here to unblame you and take away all the blemishes. Then he said, most incredible part. He said, Unreprovable. How do you unprove something that cannot be called into account? That's what unprovable means. Unreprovable. Unaccused. Blameless. In his sight. the unrighteous, the unholy person that you were because of the blood of Jesus every bit of negative thought, comment that was said about you in the past is behind you and you cannot be blamed beat yourself down. You are your worst enemy. Because of your failure, you've looked in the mirror and you've accused yourself. You've passed judgment on yourself. You've brought so much condemnation to yourself. Jesus Christ never put condemnation in your path or in your face. He never put accusations in your face. He faded truth. He put it right, made it right on the on the cross that you could not be blamed for anything else, but you have stood in the mirror. You've looked at yourself and you've blamed yourself. You beat yourself down. You could no longer hardly lift your hand and worship God because you felt like you gone too far. God is here tonight to call you back. you come tonight? As the singers begin to sing, I'm asking you right now, I'm pleading with you, that you would come to this altar and let the blood of Jesus begin to purge you.